looking after nature, it's the sign of patriotism. You know, if you like your country, you like your land, you need to look after it. You don't do that in your own home. And if your country is your home, then you shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't be throwing your rubbish around. You should be making sure that things are looked after and protected, not just for us, but for the generations to come. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. I have a very special guest today, a very renowned neurosurgeon, professor, doctor, and that is not the aim of my podcast because I like to talk about most memorable journeys, but he is also a photographer. He loves to take photographs, he loves to cook, and he loves to travel. That's what I want to talk about with Bakis uh, Papanastasiu. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Bakis. Thank you for inviting me, Lisa. Good morning to you. I'm very happy that we made it because I know that you are a very, very busy man. So I really, really appreciate your time. Let's just go ahead and uh, start about maybe your most memorable journeys or some journeys. Did you travel as a child? Yes, I did. I mean, in, in those days, it was, I mean, I, I remember vividly my, my first uh, travels with my parents in 1967 when we had to get the boat to Greece. I remember we took the car with us. In those days, the, the cruise ships uh, were carrying cargo, so we took our car. My parents and my brother and I went for a road trip around uh, Greece. We went to Athens, uh, Lefkada, Salonika. So that I was six at the time, and I still remember, it was a long time ago, as you, as you know, still remember details of the travel because for me it was such a novelty and you know leaving the island for the first time it was it was wonderful and then we repeated that in uh, five years later 71 we went to uh, Italy again with the same way took the car to Perez drove up to Umenica got the ferry across and traveled through uh, Naples Rome Florence Venice and came down by what was then Yugoslavia Wow, that was a very adventurous thing to do at the time, don't you think? I mean, your parents, they loved traveling too then. Yes, they did. They did. And uh, obviously, uh, I caught the bag at a young age and carried on ever since. I made sure that my kids caught the bug as well. So <laughs> it's because traveling opens your horizon. It makes you a, a person who tolerates people more. Did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor? Well, not always, but certainly by uh, my teens, uh, I guess. My, my father is a, is, was a general surgeon, so I was exposed to it, I guess, from a relatively young age. But neither of my other two siblings have gone into it. So it's just, it, I'm sure it influences you, but it's not what determines whether you, you do it or not. For me, it was, it seemed to fit what both my strengths and my desires were. So uh, it, uh, it, I, don't, I haven't regretted it. Okay. So you studied in the UK, didn't you? That's right. I studied in Manchester and then in my specialty in Oxford and then worked in Glasgow for so 25 years I was there. 25 years in the UK? Yes. So you do know your way around there, and you do know how uh, things work. Oh, yes. But where did you travel as a young man? Did you travel on your own? I mean, after that, of course, after my initial trips, then I only did one more 
trip and then we couldn't leave uh, Cyprus uh, because until we finished our army service. But then uh, went to the UK in 1980. And I, re- I remember again, first time back, a group of us, six of us, traveled back to Cyprus by train and boat. Oh, so wow. We uh, got a, a railway ticket from uh, London to Athens. And in those days, you had uh, this uh, inter. Rail, rail. where you could stop at five or six stops along the way. And so we stopped in Paris and Geneva, Florence, Rome, and then got the boat from Perez to Limassol uh, on deck. It was very cheap to travel again. In those days, air air tickets were very, very expensive. So uh, it was an easy way to spend a week or two coming back. So we had... uh, Great fun and a lot of stories. Well, um, it was also a beautiful experience. I mean, apart from yeah. being cheaper. Oh, sure. And I, I again, I've encouraged my children to do the same. Even, uh, you know, even it's easier in some respects to travel, but it's also probably a little bit more dangerous and needs a little bit more care than it did in those days. Yeah, but you have to take a few little risks in life, of don't course. you? When did you travel far for the first time? I'm talking about further than the UK or further than Greece. Further than Europe. Well, further than um, Europe, yes. <laughs> well, I went to the States in uh, 91 and had a, a great time there. I went for a conference in Monterey, in California. I landed in Los Angeles and I rented a car. Okay, that's um, and and I remember in LAX, and I had rented a little metro, and the guy says, "Well, where are you going?" I said, "Well, I'm driving up to San Francisco," and he says, "Oh no, 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 you cannot possibly have this car." <laughs> so he says, "Look, I'll upgrade you uh, at no cost." So then the upgrade that wasn't available. To cut a long story short, I ended up with a brand new white sports Cadillac, five liter engine. And at the time, I was a research registrar in the UK, so you know didn't really have the salary for that. But I showed up at this uh, uh, brain tumor conference in Monterey driving this car. <laughs> my American colleagues still remember it whenever we meet. They said, geez, you know, remember when you showed up and we couldn't figure out, you know, what, who was this guy with this rich kid? But it was great because after the conference, I then did a I did a solo road trip and I drove from uh, Monterey up to Yosemite and then back down through the Death Valley to Las Vegas, then San Diego and then back to Los Angeles. So it was and driving. America is made for driving. I mean, it's uh, it, it was really a great experience, and I, I've met people. You know, just stopping in little places, um, uh, meeting the locals and, you know, uh, really trying to get to know people away from the busy touristy areas. So it was was great. So, yes, that was my first sort of uh, transatlantic trip. And then in 96, I went to Australia where I worked for uh, six months. Uh, I went to Melbourne. So I worked there for six months and got a chance to travel around Australia a bit. Um, so, yeah, those were my first two. Did you, like, did you like Australia? Did you like working in Australia? Oh, yeah. Yes, it was, I nearly stayed. Nearly stayed. I had oh. an offer to, to take a permanent post in, in Melbourne. 
but uh, well, we had already decided to get married, so I had to get back to <laughs> the UK. <laughs> and Thank God you did. <laughs> so yeah, no, it was, but it was good. It was good, and I've, I've been back since, and again made uh, made great friends that we're still in contact uh, after you know twenty five years. Uh, it was great time. It was really really great uh, lifestyle there open spaces, uh, beautiful cities, uh, nature is unbelievable. Uh, I love Australia. I just it's just so far away. I also love the west of the United States. I traveled all the the places that you were mentioning. I used to be a tour guide there and I it definitely is one of especially the Monument Valley and all this nature is one of my favorite places in the world. But then again Australia is also really really beautiful. There are so many beautiful places in the world and I know that you appreciate beautiful places because I know you. We also hiked together on my birthday mm-hmm. not long ago. So you're you're a nature lover. When I was checking you out a little bit, I also found that you published a lot of papers, a lot of uh, scientific papers, but you published a book called The Birds of Evretu Dam. That's right. That's right. Yes. It combines my passion for photography and nature, really. And it was it was a pet project. It was something that, uh, you know, you, you know, that area of Cyprus for me is uh, is wonderful. And uh, I try and get there every at least every fortnight, if not uh, more often, and I usually would wander around the dam. And the, the the wildlife is is unbelievable. Unfortunately, we do not appreciate it, and we do not uh, protect it enough. I think, and that was my sort of effort, if you like, to uh, raise awareness. And um, I, I got that book printed, and I, I sent a copy to all the all the high schools in Cyprus. Oh, good to try and encourage both teachers and and the students to to actually appreciate i mean i had emails from lots of people i had people from abroad who visited Cyprus and said we didn't they didn't realize we had that many birds in cyprus or you know we and uh, certainly the the work of the bird society is is uh, recommended and but we need more protection for habitats like that okay it's an artificial habitat it's a dam reservoir but that doesn't matter. It has created a lake. The first one that a lot of migrating birds coming in from the west will come upon, and they will settle. They will stop. And uh, you know, I've, uh, I mean, in that book, I have nearly a hundred different species of, of birds that I just encountered just walking around the lake uh, over the course of a, a year and a half. And lots of those birds are, I think, it's called endemic. They only exist in Cyprus. Uh, or am I wrong? Couple, there's a couple that are endemic. There, there are some that are just passers, and you are lucky if you catch them. They may come uh, for only a week or two as they stop on their way from their uh, migration territory to the new, and they stop for refueling. So then you only get them like bee eaters, for example. You'll only get them for a week or two in March and September when they, they come and go. We have a few that are endemic. They're only per, in, in Cyprus, uh, Cyprus wheat here, for example. But then there are others that they come in either for the summer or for the winter. And, and it's interesting. I, I'll tell you a little anecdote. Well, it was one March and I uh, I was walking around. The, it was the time when the, the, the changeover, if you like, is. And in the winter in Evredu, there, there are cormorants. Uh, it used to be one and then he brought a pair and now there's seven or eight of them. So uh, it was early March and I went 
And the cormorant was there swimming around. And then four or five other cormorants came, flew over. So he took off and joined them and off they went. And an hour later, the gray herons appeared. They come for the summer. It was like a hotel. <laughs> I left and then the next, the next lot come in. And it, it was, I was able to have this sequence of photographs of the, you know, the cormorants in the morning taking off, leaving the lake, and then the herons appearing for the summer season. So it was, wow. it was good. It was good fun. That's amazing. And, you know, listening to you talking about this, I feel that this is your way of relaxing. Do you relax in nature? Because you've got a tough job to do during the week. It is. It's different. I mean, yes, it is relaxing. And, uh, I mean, I go from being inside a room, uh, let's say from opening an open space, I go from having to concentrate in one very small detail to being able to take everything in. Uh, so it, it really is um, very different from uh, what I do. And, and that, uh, that relaxes me. It's, um, so you would recommend people to spend more time in nature and appreciate it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, you know, it, it puts us into perspective and um, it doesn't have to be far and exotic, even though the far and exotic have a lot to commend them. And probably one of my most, most memorable journeys is that. But, you know, nature is around us all the time. We just need to be able to open our eyes and see it. And, you know, in Cyprus, we're blessed. We've got mountains, we've got sea, we've got... So we should be first taking more interest, but also looking after it a bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is... Um, uh, I totally agree. The, the problem is if, uh, for me, and I have some conversation with people sometimes, looking after nature, it's the sign of patriotism. You know, if you like your country, you like your land, you need to look after it. You don't do that in your own home. And if your country is your home, then you shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't be throwing your rubbish around. You should be making sure that things are looked after and protected, not just for us, but for the generations to come. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And uh, we do live on a beautiful island. I call it my island in the sun because especially in the winter, the beautiful light that we have, I don't think that the sky is as blue as it is here in in many places. So, um, you know, you don't need to go far, as you say, just appreciate what is around you. But I'd like to talk about going far a little more now, because I know that you have been to arc to, to the North Pole and to the South Pole. And I think it was in the same year. Is that correct? Well, went past the Arctic Circle, didn't make it to the North Pole. But yes, went to the Arctic and the Antarctic. We went to the Arctic in May. We took, a, again, a, a boat that just does the run from the north of Norway down to, so we went from uh, Trondheim. Um, so it crosses the Arctic Circle. You start north of the Arctic Circle and you come down south. That was in May. And then in December, we went to Antarctica. We almost made it to the the Antarctic Circle, but the pack ice was there. So we got down to, I think, 65 degrees south. But that was as far as you would go. Obviously, the Arctic and the Antarctic are so different. You know, the, the Arctic is a, a frozen sea surrounded by land. Uh, the Antarctic is a frozen land surrounded by sea, so it's it's very it's exact opposite. Uh, but it, it was unbelievable. That that for me was probably the most memorable journey. It was nature at its most pristine and most wild, and you really 
I mean, it felt privileged. You know, there's not many people are able to to do that and and be there and get there. And you see eyes that human foot has not touched. The wildlife does not fear you. You, if you, when you do get the chance to get there, the the penguins will come and walk step on you. Uh, you're not allowed to get near them. You should uh, try and avoid. But if they come, you have to stay there and allow them to go past. And uh, they do not understand. Their only predators are the seals in the in the ocean. So these uh, hulking, bulking sort of mammals on land for them, they're a, a weird novelty, but they do hold no fear for them. So the landscape is unbelievable. The icebergs are amazing. And even though the wildlife in variety appears limited, it's it's huge. You know, you 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 find uh, you know the penguin colony with tens of thousands of them. You know, you you see blue whales. You know, in 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 their tents and and seals. So it it's uh, it was a truly wonderful uh, experience. And I imagine that you took a lot of photographs. Uh, three and a half thousand. <laughs> <laughs> it's a luxury of modern day. I mean, I, I remember <laughs> contrast because with digital cameras now you could do that. I mean, I, I imagine I if you had to print them all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but then you, the trouble is afterwards having to trim them down. But I, I remember the difference. Uh, I went in in ninety two. I went to Tanzania and uh, climbed Kilimanjaro and went for a safari. Oh, did and you? I had yes, and in those days uh, used film uh, and slides. I still have boxes of slides uh, stacked up in the attic somewhere. But you know, you you would take a picture. You didn't know if it would come out until you went and developed it. You know, a month later. You know, um, there was no so you, and then it would cost because you know you, you could use so many film, and if you wanted a different. If you have different uh, light conditions, you have to you have uh, a different film for each situation. So, you know, you had to have different cameras loaded. And, and you know, nowadays you have one camera, you just say change the ISO, you, you change the settings. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, the only thing why I still carry two cameras is to have two different lenses. So I don't have to change the lens from a, you know, a wide angle to a, to a macro or a, a, to, to a telephoto lens. So, uh, but it was a completely different photographic experience, if you like, you know, um, mm-hmm. but far more work afterwards, you know. <laughs> we have come a long way. I mean, I, I want to hear a little bit more about that Kilimanjaro trip. Well, I mean, we've come a long way when it comes to photography, but we have also come a long way when it comes to medicine, haven't we? I mean, when you think of what happened in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, well, we have. I mean, it, it's when you're part of something, you do not understand and you don't appreciate the differences on when you step back and you see, well, you know, what's been happening. I mean, I remember as a as a young trainee doctor oh, back in 85, 86, the first MRI in the UK was uh, for neurological diseases was was put on put in, in Manchester, where I was a houseman. And at the time we were doing uh, sampling patients that used to get contrast to see if we were safe. Nowadays, we're now looking at MRIs with a much stronger magnet that can actually look, certainly for research purposes, and they're coming into clinical practice, you can look at cellular detail. 
So you can have an MRI scan that looks a bit like what the pathologist looks under um, under the microscope. Um, so you know, with the seven and nine Tesla magnets that are coming through now, you're able to essentially dissect somebody without touching them. Wow. Um, so <laughs> Sounds a little scary. That in the, that's in the space <laughs> of one person's working life, if you like. And, well, I haven't quite finished yet, but, um, you know, that, that was from my early days. And you don't appreciate it. And it's when you look back and you think, oh, God, my, we, we didn't have that. We didn't, were not able to do that. The power of the computers are becoming so more powerful. If we did wanted to do a reconstruction, for example, let's say you take horizontal cuts and you want to make them vertical. In those days, you used to put it on the computer and let it run overnight. <laughs> you would have it in the morning. Now on my laptop, I click a, an icon and it just reformats it in, in a few milliseconds. I mean, it's... Um, it's unbelievable. Yes, and I think this is good and bad to everything that happens, isn't there? I mean, this obviously is good for mankind, but then some developments are, of course, also a little scary, how fast we are going and, and where are we going with certain stuff. I don't think that developments are good or bad. Developments are there. Good or bad is what we do with them. Make them. And I think that that is really what... You know, uh, it, it's up to us to use them in a constructive and innovative and and, and a, a beneficial way to humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nanotechnology. Well, we can use it for medicine, or we can use it for weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's up to us. So the development in itself has no ethical issues. The ethical issues is how are we using it. And, you know, there's an example now, for example, the, you know, with the using uh, animal, the, the pig's heart that was transplanted to, mm-hmm. to a human. So the, the technology is there. Now, I'm not saying whether we should be for or against, but the argument should be of how we're using that technology um, and then the ability to change that. It's not playing God, using what is there and making sure that we use it for good. Yeah, that is very, very true what you're saying. And I want to ask you, because you've traveled a lot and you've seen many, many different people, do you believe that people are basically good? Yes, of course. You do. You want because I want to believe that. I want to believe that people are basically um, good. People, and it's interesting that the more good right, so it doesn't sound patronizing, but let's say primitive in in terms of technological development a society is, the more humane it is. Even though the the people who should be looking after what they got more because it's limited and it's only there, they're the ones most likely to share it with you. You know, you will find uh, more compassion and, and, and inclusivity in the tribal mountains of Vietnam that you'd find in, you know, in, in a in Limassol. European city. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's true. Uh, so I, I look at, for example, let's say our attitude now to uh, refugees and migrants and so on. And, uh, you know, the and I look at the Greek tradition and by Greek, I mean going back to, to the classics. I mean, it's okay. We're always proud of our ancestors, but then we need to understand what we're proud for. The foreigner, the Xenos, was under the auspices of the father of the gods, Zeus. He, you know, the Xenos Dias, he was protecting 
the foreigner when he came to you and you would share, you would give him shelter, share your food, and you would not even ask them what they wanted or what they were doing unless they wanted to volunteer that information. Your duty was just to give them shelter and food and see them on their way. And we were very inclusive. We were borrowing from other cultures. We were assimilating other cultures. Now we seem to be forced one way or another to just look inwards all the time. Uh, I know there are all sorts of um, issues with uh, modern movement of, of people, but you know, the closing your doors and raising walls is not the answer. And we were, uh, you know, the Greeks and Cypriots, we have been forced to go all over the world. Uh, I remember when I, I went to Melbourne and uh, we had operated on, on somebody from the Cyprus um, community there and uh, they people found out. And of course, a lot of them in Melbourne were from my father's village because it's occupied. So they, they heard the surname and they said, right, okay, must be, you know, from my village. So they came, they found me, they invited me to a party and there was this uh, lady that she said, well, what do you want me to make? And I asked for her to make some sipopita, which is a, a pie they make with buttermilk. Um, oh, wow. So when they have the milk, they take the froth off the top. She had learned how to do it from my late grandmother. And half a world across, I came across her and she says, right, your grandma taught me how to do this and I will make it for you when, when you come for dinner. Oh my God, this is amazing. And this is so, so very true because I have traveled a lot all over the world and I have learned that we are all the same. We all have the same needs. We all have the same pains and we all want to be happy and safe. Mm -hmm. True. True. Yeah, that was beautiful what you just said. And um, especially in today's world where we are all just looking after ours, not all of us, but many people just looking after themselves. Just a quick one to go back to Kilimanjaro. How was that? <laughs> well, I had just finished my research and I was started working in Oxford at the time. As a, so I, I hadn't been on holiday for a bit. So I took a, nearly a month off, well, three weeks and uh, combined a one-week safari with the one-week climb up the Kilimanjaro. So we went first to from Arusha to travel around in a, in a converted army truck uh, with a group company I was uh, traveling with, camping around in, in the bush. Gorongoro Crater, it's an unbelievable place. It's... it's one of my favorite places in the world. The concentration of wildlife is unbelievable. And it, uh, it actually, it's an interesting theme, going off on a tangent here, of calderas, really, and, and how different they can be, but always stunning and, and wonderful. And uh, you think of the caldera in Santorini, the Gorongoro crater, you think of the calderas in Hokkaido, uh, which are lakes and with warm springs around them. It's just an unbelievable place. So after finishing uh, safari, a group of uh, four of us with our guides uh, walked up. And, and it's, it's interesting. And then the, we had this four of us and we started with 12. I mean, what you realize is you walk for hours to cover a few kilometers. I mean, mm -hmm. there's... The oxygen is very uh, low. Uh, you cannot run. 
Um, you, you need to walk very, very slowly, otherwise you hyperventilate and you end up with mountain sickness. So you, you walk up and at every uh, stop, uh, they have to carry everything, water, there's no water up there, there's no, in those days it was firewood, there was, so they have to carry the wood for the fire. Mm. And then at every hut, uh, three of the porters would be going back. So they would be the ones that they would only go to the first hut, the ones for the second, and then you ended up with uh, the guide and two porters for the final uh, bit to walk up there. So it took about five days uh, to walk up and three days to walk back down again. And even, even the porters, because they don't stay up long enough, they don't acclimatize. So even the even the people there get uh, can get mountain sickness, even though they, they live and they go up and down the mountain all the time, but they're never up long enough to uh, acclimatize. An amazing experience. And once more nature dictating, isn't it? I mean, we, you mm-hmm. know, we have to adjust. And oh, this yes. You, you, it's when you go to a little bit remote places that you realize that you are on one part of nature, but you, you are helpless. You know, we, yes. we think we're all powerful, we're all technology and so on. And uh, it's the same. I mean, I, I have a little anecdote. When one of uh, our travels, we I took uh, the whole family, we, we went to the Orinoco Delta in Venezuela. I was visiting, we were visiting some friends, had some very good friends in Caracas. So they organized for us to have uh, five, six days in the Orinoco Delta. So that was an hour by plane from uh, Caracas to Maturan, an hour by car from Maturan to the river, and an hour on a speedboat on the river to get to the delta. When we got there, I thought, oh dear, if something happens, then we have to do this in reverse to get (laughs) to what we call civilization. To, you know, so, but it was very funny because at one point we were in this um, hotel, which was an echo, lodge uh, on the river and across they were sponsoring a school for the local Indians and there was this boy that was obviously unwell so they brought him over to to the lodge and of course he spoke only the local language he didn't speak Spanish so there was a, a guy that was translating what he said to Spanish I didn't have any Spanish there was another guy that spoke Spanish and English to translate to me because I was the only doctor around, and this boy was obviously not well and trying to, and I thought, there's nothing I can do. I, I have no tools, I have no kid, I have no, you know, uh, I cannot do blood tests, I cannot do x-rays, I can, all we can do is, okay, he had a very sore tummy, which was, uh, and then all we could do is wait for his mother to come and pick him up. But the, these people, um, and it was, we had a wonderful guide, Raphael, going through, he knew every tree in the jungle. He knew there was a, a tree that the, the leaves would foam, so they use it for soap. Wow. And there was another one, you cut it, had this red juice, which helped clotting. It, it looked like blood. Mm-hmm. It actually clotted like blood. So when they had a wound, they would put that on and it would stop the bleeding. And I remember really, we, we would walk around and then there was this downpour. He was collecting bits and bobs from the jungle floor. And then when we stopped, he lit fire with no matches, nothing, with a stick. And he, you know, you, you see it in, you know, movies and National Geographic sort of talking about it. Here he was, he did that, mixed up some water with flour, and he produced bread in the middle of this 
wet jungle that had just had a downpour, and you thought there's no way that anything would uh, would uh, be would be able to set on fire here. But it, it was unbelievable. Uh, That's experience. very humbling, isn't it? It is. We forget to connect with nature. I mean, we've been saying it a few times in this podcast, and and uh, you know, it 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 can heal. We can heal through nature in many different ways. So before I let you go, Vakis, I know that you're a busy man, but I want to touch one last subject, and that is food, because I know that you like to eat and you like to cook. What is your favorite food and what do you like to cook most? Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> I don't have I, 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 I don't have a favorite food. I like food. I like taste. I like to explore different combinations. And then for me, you know, it, it, it's the numerous possibilities of what you can, can have. I guess one of the sort of most comforting, I guess, uh, foods uh, for me would be a risotto. Mm, yes, uh, I agree. <laughs> uh, so, but with uh, plenty of uh, cheese in it and, 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 and truffle and, and so on. But, you know, you, you can... You know, something that uh, can appear very, uh, very simple, but uh, it's got uh, a lot of uh, memories, I guess. And that, that's it. I mean, we, 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 and it's interesting that even neurologically, yeah, our taste circuits and our memory circuits are the same. And that's why we uh, will, uh, smells and tastes will evoke uh, memories. Uh, they, they live adjacent brain circuits. So, uh, Food for me is uh, is not just nourishment; it's an experience, and um, I try and improvise. I try and mix things up. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but it's being able to try and make something interesting, even with the most uh, what would appear to be banal ingredients. Wonderful. When it comes to the future, what would be some travel plans, Bakis, that you have? Well, I, I still have sort of three big destinations that I haven't managed. One is it would be Alaska uh, or North Canada. And the other two are China and India, which are places where I haven't been. And I definitely... So I think this year, if we manage, I think we'll probably be looking at uh, North America, Alaska. Beautiful. It's one of the places that I have, haven't been. I was a tour guide in the US everywhere except Alaska. And I think that's definitely worth the visit. And I really, really hope that we can start traveling again, you know, without having to worry about PCR tests and about quarantine. So let's hope for the best. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me on your podcast and uh, all the best for the rest. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes. If you like what you hear and you want to know more about what I do, check out my website www.thesoulkit.com.